the folk on the screen here this morning are a British comedy duo. Does anyone recognize them? No? Hale and Pace. Does anyone remember those names? A British comedy duo who I used to love as a kid. I probably shouldn't have been watching them. They were probably MA 15 plus, and I was probably not supposed to be watching it, but I did. And each week they'd present a skit show, and in one of them they'd come out dressed as these tough gangsters or British gangsters in their tuxedos. And they'd, one of them would say a line and the other one would make it into a joke. And the one that sticks with me, that, I, that is why I'm bringing it up this morning, is that one of them says, I don't like scandals. And the other one says, I don't like any kind of informal footwear. I don't like scandals because scandals sound like sandals. And so I don't like any kind of informal footwear. And if you want to see some informal footwear, just direct your attention to Hans at the end of the meeting this morning. (laughs) He's decided it's still summer. He's still wearing his informal footwear. The joke is that scandals sounds like sandals. And if you don't like sandals, you probably won't like any kind of informal footwear. It's a silly joke, but it has stuck with me for years. And it's true. I don't like sandals. And I also don't like scandals. But it's something we in the church have been dealing with, well, it seems like forever. But things have become more public in the last few decades as matters that were previously ignored or swept under the carpet have become public knowledge, public information, matters of public debate and scorn has been heaped upon the church as individual Christians have failed morally and the church has failed to discipline and deal with bad behavior, outrageous behavior. I don't like scandals. But the only way to deal with a scandal is to deal with it, to deal with it openly, deliberately, and purposefully. When moral failure is hidden or obscured or ignored or managed behind closed doors, it is not dealt with. There is an old saying, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Or, as Jesus puts it, like this, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. These are the words of Jesus. I don't like scandals. I don't like any kind of inadequate disciplinary process. And it's not in my notes, but I'm going to add in a a story here for my mum and dad. Uh, I had lunch with my mum and dad just this week. They're listening on the radio in Boona at the time, uh, right now to this message, so they'll be hearing this. Um, And a story came up that as children, my brother and sister had been lighting fires under the pool. We had an above-ground pool, and there was a pool decking all the way around, and you could get down underneath. And they'd been sneaking under there and lighting fires and playing with matches. And I dobbed on them. I did the right thing. I told mum and dad what they'd been doing. And you know what happened? They smacked all three of us. 
because they thought that there was a good chance that I'd been lighting fires too before I decided to dob. I don't remember if that's the case. I deny all knowledge. But ever since then, I don't like inadequate disciplinary processes. They've, Mum and Dad, you've, you need to repent. You've done the wrong thing there. You've let me down terribly now. I don't trust anyone. I don't trust policemen. I don't trust judges. I don't trust anyone because I got smacked for dobbing as a little kid. I don't like scandals. I don't like any kind of inadequate disciplinary process. Back to the notes. But I am heartened, however, slightly, that there is nothing new under the sun and that the early church had their fair share of scandals as well. We are working our way through a book of the Bible, through 1 Corinthians. It's a letter from a pastor to his church, and the church in Corinth has its share of problems and challenges, which is good for us because we can learn how these things were dealt with by the experts, or at least if they weren't experts, they were the first apostles. And we can see what we can learn for our day and age. We have seen in our previous study in this letter that the big problem in Corinth is that they have become puffed up. They've become full of themselves, full of their self-opinion. They think they've arrived on some sort of amazing spiritual height. They've achieved all there is to achieve. They are the elite of all creation. And they've begun to look down on Paul, their old preacher, and to compare him unfavorably, unfavorably to other Christian leaders. And Paul has reminded them that he is a simple and plain old preacher. He didn't come with fancy philosophy or amazing works of power, but he came with a simple message about a crucified Messiah. And let's read it together. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And over these first four chapters, Paul has dealt with the church's arrogance and folly. He has placed some strategic pins in their inflated egos and punctured some deeply held falsehoods. And now we come to the fun bit of 1 Corinthians. Fun is inverted commas for those listening online or on the radio or on the podcast. The fun bit of 1 Corinthians, where the dirty laundry gets aired and things have to be dealt with. As I said in the kids' time, this isn't exactly PG material, but it's not R-rated either, so don't panic. Let's read through together. So I'll read from 1 Corinthians 5. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. 
I hope you can see why I labelled that MA15+. plus. That would have opened so many questions for our kids' time. And perhaps they'll go and read it at home and they'll ask you about it at home, mums and dads. Paul is horrified. The church in Corinth is openly tolerating a situation that no self-respecting pagan would have permitted. A man was living with his own stepmother, presumably his father's second wife. How the situation has arisen, we don't know. But it seems that the church has gone along with it. The leaders were puffed up, convinced that they had now passed beyond good and evil into a world where absolutely anything could be done. There are two big issues being raised in this passage. And the first is going to be a repeated refrain for the next three chapters of 1 Corinthians, which will take us through to Christmas, I expect. And we will be looking at it from various angles as Paul moves from one topic to another, mostly involving questions of sex. So you've got that to look forward to. With the question being, where are the lines to be drawn? And how do we know to draw them there? And the second big issue, which is highlighted dramatically in this passage, is what kind of discipline is appropriate in cases of severe misbehavior? What Paul says here is so sharp and striking that we need to stand back, take a deep breath, and see what's going on. And as we do so, we notice he says that the church is proud. They're puffed up about this situation. They are proud to be part of a community that's been able to leave behind the normal constraints of their Corinthian society. And Corinth was a a lax seaport. If you can imagine the worst things you can imagine about a seaport, that's the city of Corinth. And even those people are horrified at what's going on in this church. This tells us the question at stake here isn't just an isolated moral question. Paul sees it as a further aspect of the issue he's been dealing with through the letter so far, the problems that came to a head in chapter 4. Some of the leaders have become proud, have become puffed up, and are behaving more like philosophers than like Christian teachers. In particular, and this too we'll meet in the coming passages, they think that throwing moral caution to the wind is a sign of how spiritually grown up they are, how important their new faith and Christian status is. They've left behind, they think, not only the old world of pagan belief, but the interlocked world of pagan taboos. They say, we have come of age. We've grown out of all that old pagan morality. But the problem is that by leaving aside the pagan morality, they've also left aside the Christian morality. They think they've come of age. Well, Paul doesn't bother to argue with them. He doesn't bother to argue that the particular behavior in this case is wrong. There are rules against this kind of thing in the Old Testament, and the references are there in your notes, where it is considered incest to sleep with your father's wife. It's also against Roman law. And again, there's another reference in your notes, which if you know how to Google, you can read the works of Cicero and see what he says about this sort of stuff. 
Paul doesn't argue the morality. He says this is wrong and it needs to stop. He moves straight into action. They should, he says, have removed from their midst someone who's been doing this kind of thing. Paul assumes that there needs to be some kind of structure, some kind of limit, some kind of consistency about the membership of the church where some people are in and some people are out and your behavior is part of that. Some line that it's possible to step over and for the church to go, no, you can't do that. That's not right. That there has to be some control over who comes to worship, over who belongs to the community. Now, this has nothing to do with going back on justification by faith. In the next two chapters, as we work our way through, we'll see that Paul knows that fellowship, the fellowship of all who believe in Jesus as the Messiah and the Lord, can be badly damaged by behavior which does not acknowledge him as such. That is, to be a Christian, you need to say, Jesus is Lord. But there are people who say Jesus is Lord and then don't live as though he's Lord at all. They say Jesus is Lord, but then they say, actually, I'm Lord and I'll do what I want. And Paul says that's not right. If people are saying they're Christians, they're saying Jesus is Lord, then they need to act like it. And if they're not acting like it, the church needs to do something about it. In this present case, Paul says at the, last, at the end of the last verse, verse 5, he says this person can still be saved, but it's going to happen on the day of the Lord and it's going to happen after judgment and it's only going to happen on the other side of the judgment of this current behavior. There's still a possibility of salvation for this man. We're not wiping him off completely. We're not condemning him to hell. We are not damning him. That's not our job. Jesus is the judge. He decides who gets into the kingdom of God and who doesn't. But as the church, we need to decide what kind of behavior is okay for those on the inside. And we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. This behavior is threatening the very life and witness of the church. It's making them look bad in the eyes of the pagans. The judgment must be exercised through appropriate discipline. And that is, they need to be removed from the community. Paul's description of this removal is striking and to us apparently harsh. He says, we will, you need to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, Paul uses the word Satan very sparingly. It is, of course, the Jewish name for the devil, and it indicates the one who accuses people of wrongdoing and entices them to evil, so he will have something to accuse them of. Paul sees the world outside the church as a sphere over which Satan has power. And so to put someone out of the community is to expel them from the sphere in which the Messiah saves them, and put them back into the world that the devil controls. And Paul Paul may even have in his mind that such an ejection, such an expulsion, such a moving out of the community could result in this man's actual death. So sure is he of the power of the gospel. 
and at work in the church through the things that the church does and says and its actions through taking communion and baptism and the other actions of the church. Paul talks later in this letter that there are people coming and taking communion in the wrong spirit and so they're getting sick and some have died. Paul says that those who abuse the, the, the sacraments, he doesn't use the word sacraments, that's our word, that's a word we've made up. But Paul says those who come and use the church's uh, worship systems inappropriately are damaging themselves. And certainly we have examples through the New Testament of people lying to the apostles and then dropping down dead. Now watch what you say to me. I'm not an apostle. I'm not an apostle. I'm not threatening you. But we need to be careful about what we say and what we do because we're dealing with holy stuff. And if we deal with it lightly, we might get zapped and that might be the end of us. The means by which Paul exercises his authority is very strange and I don't understand it and I won't take questions on it today. I will, but I'll tell you I don't understand it. Paul says, I am with you in spirit. He says, he tells us something more about Paul meant at the end of the previous chapter about being with them but being far away. He sees such a close spiritual unity between himself and the community that he has already judged this man and judged the case and found the man guilty. And he says, and when the spirit, when you assemble together and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, then cast him out. They must carry out the sentence. They must solemnly expel this offender. You know, most comfortable Western churches have long since given up even thinking about practicing discipline. Though until quite recently, all churches knew, at least in theory, it was a vital part of community life. Have we perhaps become too puffed up, too proud, unable to tell the difference between Christian freedom and scandalous behaviour? We'll explore that more over these next few weeks. Are there any questions this morning before I come to a conclusion? I like to stop and see if there are questions for those visiting with us. No questions? Oh, yes, Stella. Great. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? That, yeah, yeah. Great question. Thank you, Sella. So Sella's asking about verse 5 where it says, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And what does that mean and why are they handing him over? Um, so I don't think they're physically taking him and physically handing him to a physical Satan. I don't think that's what that means. But the idea that the church is where God is ruling and outside the church is where Satan rules. And so Paul is saying, this guy is inside the church, but he doesn't really belong. 
He's not living the right way. He needs to be removed from the kingdom of God, the church, and put back into the kingdom of Satan. And we'll talk more about what that means in a moment. But it's for a good reason. It's so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. He's saying, let this man have the consequences of his action. So often in life, we, we, we cut short the processes of God's judgment or the way God fixes things. We, we jump into the situations and we cut them short. And that's not good. People need to hit rock bottom. Have you ever met an alcoholic? Anybody? No, don't put your hand up if you're in AA. That's, that's not, that's not, we're in the wrong meeting. This is Sinners Anonymous. Any sinners in the house? Amen. God bless you. My name is David and I'm a sinner. All right. Um, but by putting him outside, they're saying this guy is not living the way a Christian should live. If Jesus was his Lord, he wouldn't be doing this. He, he's living in two different worlds and he needs to have some consequences for that action. So we're going to put him outside the church and let him have the consequences of his action. You know, the best prayer in the last, ever since the COVID pandemic has come up, I've learnt my favourite prayer is this, Lord God, bless that person with consequences appropriate to their actions. Lord God, bless that person with consequences appropriate to their actions. And I think that's a good prayer. (laughs) There are other ways of saying that. That's the Christian way of saying it. Bless that person with consequences appropriate to their actions. You're going to drive like an idiot, Lord God, deal with him. You're going to cough all over people, Lord God, deal with them. You're going to make choices which perhaps aren't wise choices, Lord God, you deal with them. And in this situation, I think the church, Paul is saying to the church, put this guy outside the church and let him have the consequences of his action. The church shouldn't be protecting him from the rest of the society who already despises him. Thank you for a great question. Did I answer it? I came close. Good. Over here. Well, okay, so the question then is, but how does that then save his spirit? Well, I, the hope would be that if he deals with the, if he is excluded from the church, and suddenly finds himself cut off from that grace, from that fellowship, from that love, he'll come to a place of going, actually, I need to repent. I need to change my behavior. And if he won't, well, then he goes the way he goes. The hope is that he would be brought back in. Yes? When our children misbehave, we say, no ice cream for you. And if we give them the ice cream, even after they've misbehaved, what are we teaching them? That they can misbehave and have ice cream. In the same way, the church, is, the church needs to say, actually, there are limits to what we all put up with inside this fellowship. And you've crossed those limits and we need to put you outside. Over here. Okay, that's a good question. So um, your name has gone straight out of my head. Julie. Julie is asking... Um, what about the consequences for the priests? And there's a big assumption there, Julie, that, that are allowing this man to get away with that. We're going to come to that in a moment. That there are no priests in the Christian church at this time. There are no priests. And we're going to talk about that in a moment, about what that means. There are leaders, certainly. There are people who are in positions of authority. But we'll talk more about that in just a moment. So I'm going to put a pin in that one and I'll come back to it. Any other questions? One more. Is it about sandals? No. What about Judge Knott or 
That's a great question, and I'm not going to take that one this week. But yes, this is a good point. I was waiting for Matt to bring it up as well, because Matt asked me about this six months ago. Um, yes, the first few chapters of, of Corinthians, Paul's been saying to the church, stop judging me, stop judging me, stop judging me. It's not your job. Yes? And now he says, it's your job to judge that bloke. And how do we deal with that? We're going to spend the next couple of chapters finding out and why and how. We will get to that in coming weeks. So if you miss a Sunday, you can watch it online. Okay. I'm, going to put my, I'm putting my pin in Julie's question. I'm coming back to it. The question is, what should they have done? What should the Corinthians have done? And what ought we do in similar circumstances? What is the process for dealing with these kinds of sin, or indeed any kind of sin? Well, we need to go back to the instruction manual, and the instruction manual is the words of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus gives instructions for dealing with sin in the congregation, the assembly, the church. And so if you've got your Bibles, you might like to turn to Matthew chapter 18. The words are there on the screen. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Jesus outlines a four-step process, starting with a brave individual, someone who sees something is wrong and takes the bold step to do something about it. It's a bold step because, of course, Jesus says we should consider our own sin much greater than our brother's. You remember him talking about consider your own sin like a log in your eye and your neighbor's as a speck? He says remove the log before you even try to deal with the speck. But having dealt with our own sin, having been in prayer and careful repentance and carefully considered what's going on, the brave individual is to go and challenge the person. If they listen and repent, then good. But if they won't, Jesus says, then it's a job for two or three brave people to confront and challenge and hold each other accountable and keep records. And if they still refuse to listen, then things need to be brought to the church as a whole for the community to confront and challenge, and call for repentance. And here we come to Julie's question. It isn't the job of the leadership to decide who is in and who is out. It's the responsibility of the community. If the person still won't repent, they must suffer the most awful penalty the church is permitted to inflict, that they should be treated as a pagan or a tax collector. Now, there are times in history that the church has stepped way over that. There are times in church history where we've gone and killed people. Yes, the people have been killed in the name of Jesus because they wouldn't repent 
And that's wrong. That's so wrong. And we need to keep repenting as a church for that. I'm sure us Wesleyans never did that. No, not us. But you know who I'm talking about, those other people. They're wicked. But our theological ancestors are part of this as well. The worst thing the church is allowed to do to someone is to treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. That is no longer a part of the church. Be regarded as someone outside of the kingdom of God and therefore a person who needs to be shown love and to whom the gospel needs to be proclaimed and explained again and again and again. Jesus is not saying shun them and have nothing to do with them. And Paul will talk about that. We'll talk about that next week as well, the same thing. He's not saying shun them and exclude them and have nothing to do with them. Some churches do that, you know, and some sects and some cults do that as well. They kick people out and they never mention their name again. That's not what we're called to do. If we do need to remove someone from the fellowship, we still need to love them. We still need to care for them. We still need to show them compassion and encourage them and tell them you need to repent and believe. Jesus died for you. You are of infinite value. What did Jesus say? Let's read it together. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And that's the message for pagans and tax collectors as much as it is for you and I. The problems we have in modern churches, and oh, we've got problems. And the problems the Corinthians had stem from the fact that we don't take the words of Jesus seriously enough. We don't follow his plan. We don't follow his process, his procedure for dealing with sin. Rather than confronting someone we think to be sinning, we tend to skip straight to gossip. Instead of establishing facts and gaining witnesses, we spread rumor and half-truths and wild speculation. Or sometimes things are buried by the leaders and those in the know, and people are simply removed from positions or moved about to other places, and things are kept so tightly confidential the community does not get a say in what happens or why. And sometimes the confidentiality is worse than the gossip in its consequences. My dear friends, these are not easy issues. I don't like scandals. But Jesus tells us what to do and how. So let's honour his words. Are there any more questions? The other week I preached my second sermon and Talia said, I had a question after the second sermon and you skipped straight past it. Anyone very, very quickly? No, everyone's happy? Good. The song that I've got this morning, if there are questions, you have my email address, you have my phone number, and as soon as my voice comes back, I'd love to talk to you about these things. I can send you an email with even when my voice is gone. The song I've chosen this morning is a song of 
holiness and of commitment and of calling God to examine us and make us holy so that we can be of use to the world, so that we can... So it says, if on my soul a trace of sin remaineth, and you know it's a good song if it's got an uff at the end of the words, if on my hands a stain may yet be seen, if one dark thought a wearied mind retaineth, oh, wash me, Lord, till every part be clean. For I would live that men may see thyself in me. I would in faith ascend thy holy hill. And with my thoughts in tune with thy divinity, would learn how best to do thy holy will. It's a song that's asking Jesus to make us holy, to make us right, to make us good, so that we can go and do other things. And yes, Talia, please come. I'm going to need you to sing this song. And as we sing this song this morning, Let's ask the Lord Jesus to make us holy, to make us clean, to make us right. Father God, this morning, we thank you for the tough words of Jesus, the tough words of Paul, and the courage they had to call out wrong behavior. Father God, make us brave, make us holy, make us true to you. And help us to follow the words of Jesus, to follow his due process as we deal with sin in the church. Father God, I'm not just talking about the congregation here at Logan. Father God, these are some beautiful, holy people. But Father God, our congregation is part of a larger denomination and a part of a larger movement that has challenges and has issues. Father God, there are things in our church, in our society, in our world that need to be challenged. Father God, wash us clean so that we can do your jobs, so we can live the way you want us to live, so we can fulfill the tasks that you have set us to fulfill. Lord God, make us holy and brave and good and loving. And like Jesus, this we pray in his powerful, precious and amazing name. Amen.